Hello and welcome to this, the fourth episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, a podcast box sent from Energy Voice in paid partnership with Womble Bond Dickinson. The aim of this series is to look at which countries are developing the most sustainable, innovative and scalable energy solutions and how we can learn from each other. Over the course of five episodes, we're going to take a look at how the UK is shaping up in its race to cut emissions and move towards net zero and how this compares with other countries working to similar ends. My name is Ed Reed. I'm an editor here at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And I'm delighted to welcome Charles Robson, a partner at Womble Bond Dickinson. And all the way from Finland is Anuka Sari, senior specialist from the Energy Department in the Ministry of Employment and the Economy. Over the course of the Bigger, Faster, Better series, we're looking at various aspects of how the energy transition is working out. And this fourth episode is, is looking at heating networks how they're currently being used, how this may be changing, and I suppose also what lessons can we draw. Heating is a major source of energy demand throughout Europe and therefore a major challenge for attempts to cut emissions as we aim for net zero. District heating has been an important part of Finland's approach, making up nearly half of the country's supply mix. But here in the UK, the, the government's talked of district heating, but it often feels a little neglected. And announcements such as the recent energy security strategy focus more on heat pumps, perhaps, with only around 2% of the UK's homes connected to a heating network. I think there's still some reticence around heating networks, not least with the concerns around high upfront costs. However, this can clearly offer a way to provide lower or even zero carbon heat. Uh, for instance, in Dunfermline, a plan is going ahead for heat from a landfill site to warm a new housing development. Charles, I'm going to start with you in this challenge or, or perhaps opportunity in the UK. How fast do you think new networks can be installed, particularly given that upfront cost? I mean, what, what sort of limits do you see? And, and I suppose also, do you think these only work in new builds? They take some time, is the short answer. They do take a few years from the get-go because they'll take a, a couple of years probably for their feasibility to be assessed, uh, for you know the network to be designed, for the necessary agreements to be negotiated and documented. And then once all of that is done, they'll take at least a year and a half, two years or so to, to build, depending on the size of the network. So... Altogether, from the get-go, it's probably four-plus years to build a network of significant size, I would say. They, they also tend to be built in phases. That's an important point to note that typically there's a sort of anchor phase, but certainly with district heating schemes as opposed to heating schemes that are to service a single development, the economics of the scheme improve as the scheme expands. And so they tend to be built out in, in phases over time. But they don't make sense everywhere. The technical people in heat networks refer to a thing called linear heat density, which is basically the, the total heat demand divided by the, the total length of pipe. And that needs to be above a certain level for the heat network, a heat network solution to make economic sense. So heat networks tend to be appropriate in more urban environments. They, they tend not to be the best solution in more rural environments where individual building heat pumps uh, and other technologies may make more sense. The thing about heat networks is, is really it's the demand. The economic case for a heat network depends on that demand and the sufficient density of demand, really. So those are the factors, to my mind, that limit them. But that they're not limited to new builds. 
they're certainly appropriate for new builds, but district energy schemes can be installed to service existing buildings with existing demand. And the challenges are slightly different in, in the two cases, but they're certainly not limited to, to new build. Of course, Finland has a, a much longer track record in, um, in heat networks than the UK. We're relative newcomers to the market. So I'm sure that Anika has um, has comments to make as well. Anuka, yeah, let's 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 bring you in. I mean, uh, looking at that sort of you know sort of fa- foundational step, obviously, as, as Charles says, you know, Finland is sort of further down this this particular road. How do you go about sort of starting to get that ball rolling? We don't really focus on building new district heating networks. We are rather focusing modernizing our energy production. So we have here in Finland uh, more than. 300 district heating networks. In recent years, heating companies have modernized their production and distribution systems to be more efficient and low emissions. And emissions will be replaced by a renewable and non-combustion uh, production. And for example, we aim to be carbon neutral by 2035. And to achieve this target, uh, we really need to decarbonize the whole economy, including heating. And in Finland, we know the importance of reliable energy supply may be better than any other country in Europe. Because due to our cold climates, we need reliable and flexible energy production around the clock in all circumstances. So our companies have already adapted to the situation and uh, we are providing solutions which are flexible, reliable and also efficient. And uh, we are uh, currently uh, making a strong transition to a fourth generation district heating system where the heating is based on several heat sources. Distribution temperatures uh, are lower than before and the system uh, is intelligent and flexible. I think obviously that kind of question about decarbonisation is, is is obviously really important. And I suppose that's, you know, obviously that's kind of the, the, the broader conversation, isn't it? So in terms of, of, of how Finland is, is kind of accomplishing this shift away from sort of traditional fossil fuel sources for, for, for that sort of heating stock, how are you going about it? And, 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 and how quickly can you, can you bring about that change, do you think? That's very hard questions. For example, if I give some facts from Finland, Finland has planned already policies with uh, determinations to act for climate change mitigation. In 2020, the share of uh, renewables in Finland was already around 50%. So we have decided to ban use of coal in energy production by 2029. And we are implementing uh, this for the most part already by 2025. So quite quite quickly. Uh, and that this means that we are currently investing uh, very heavily in clean and renewable energy solutions. And Charles, you know, I'm bringing this kind of question to you. I mean, looking at this kind of I suppose that that sort of long-term problem of the the extent of time it takes to build a, a network, coupled with this sort of decarbonisation pressure, presumably in the UK we are we, we've got to think about sort of decarbonisation from the get-go. Yeah, exactly, and and government policy is focused on that. So I'll give you a, a couple of examples, and of course, government can influence the market through the public sector participants, but also by encouraging the the private sector. So heat networks have some quite challenging economics, as we mentioned earlier, but government is making gap funding 
available in order to bridge the gap between a project which would be below the rate of return, investment return that the private sector would need by providing grant funding, they can lift the returns to a level that incentivizes that private sector investment. But they're doing it on condition that the heat network that is uh, provided with that grant funding is low carbon. So they, the, by setting the rules of the competition by which they disperse the grant funding, choosing which projects to support with the grant funding, they're incentivizing the development of heat networks which are low or ideally zero, but realistically low carbon right from the outset. And similarly, through local government, for example, setting policies about public sector net zero targets, that creates the incentive for local authorities and public sector bodies that are the anchor off-takers, the consumers of heat, that they want low-carbon heat. And so if those actors are going to play a key role in the feasibility of a new heat network, it needs to be a low-carbon heat network. And so that's another tool that government uses to, to try and, as you say, uh, shape the market so that these heat networks are low carbon from the get-go. And of course, corporates in the private sector increasingly have CSR and other policies which they've set themselves their own net zero targets. And so again, that incentivizes them as a customer, as an off-taker of heat from a heat network, they want low carbon heat. And so all of those factors together, I think, are acting to encourage the development of, of low carbon heat networks. And I suppose just to sort of drill into that question a little bit deeper, Charles, when we talk about sort of, you know, the sort of zero or low carbon option for heat networks, what, what, what sort of feedstocks, I mean, how is, that, how is that heat being generated? For the kind of low carbon networks we're talking about, typically the heat source would be from a heat pump or from an existing waste heat source. And so in the first category, it's things like air source heat pumps. They're electrically powered, but they have what the technical people refer to as a, a coefficient of performance, which means that for every kilowatt hour of electrical power you put into the heat pump, you might get three or more kilowatt hours of heat out. So they're taking heat from the surrounding air, in the case of an air source heat pump, but they are electrically powered. And obviously, the greener that electricity is, the lower carbon the overall heat network will be. And as our UK grid decarbonizes over time, the uh, heat produced by these heat networks will also progressively reduce in terms of its carbon intensity. So those are the air source heat pumps. You can do the same thing taking heat out of the ground. You can take heat out of water sources like rivers and lakes. You can take it out of the water that floods old coal mines. There's lots of heat sources, low carbon, zero carbon heat sources around. On the industrial side, there are plants like energy from waste plants that are, exist and are performing a different function but they generate heat as a byproduct of what they're doing. And it makes sense in the right locations to try to use that heat, which will otherwise just be vented to the atmosphere in order to capture that heat and through a heat network to use it to, to heat local buildings. And again, you, 
You can argue, is that really zero or low carbon heat? Well, if you look at it one way, yes, it is, because it's just waste heat. It's heat which would otherwise simply go into the atmosphere. There's no additional carbon cost to capturing that heat and using it to heat buildings. Having said that, it is the product of a combustion process. And so there is some carbon release as a result of um, the EFW operation. But the same is also true of industrial uh, processes of all sorts. So in big industrial areas, there's a lot of waste heat being generated as a byproduct of whatever it is that the, the plant is otherwise doing. So that's another great source for low carbon heat. And Anuka, I mean, in, in, in Finland, do you, do you look at a sort of uh, sort of similar sources? That, but that there's the sort of two options. Is it, is it a similar setup in, in Finland? Yes, sounds very familiar. What you, what you said already, and we have also uh, paid attention to the electrification of heating. Uh, this means that we use variable uh, renewable energy in a wise and uh, clever way. Also, we are sector integration to make the whole uh, energy system carbon free. Actually, I can say that we need both. We need uh, we need a district heating, but we need also uh, heat pumps. And I, actually, my opinion, we need heat pumps even more. And we must keep in mind that the district heating network can can be the key to the rapid uh, transition to green. And uh, when there is a cheap wind or solar power uh, available, uh, it can be stored uh, in a heat storage. Uh, district heating, electricity and gas sectors can uh, interplay in many ways. And I think we really need that. Uh, when new heat uh, energy sources are available, they are not so costly to integrate to the district heating systems that can change the heating system in all individual buildings. So district heating systems and also geoenergy and heat pumps-based systems, can, they can offer opportunities to act as a platform economy for the new energy efficiency services. Fantastic. A, a really interesting there idea there around energy storage. And mm. I think, you know, obviously kind of playing into a lot of the discussions around the renewable energy that we're going to keep on having. We're going to pause here for, for a short break and then we'll be back in a little moment. Womble Bond Dickinson is a transatlantic law firm with a keen focus on the energy sector. As part of its Rebuild Britain campaign, Womble Bond Dickinson is looking at the energy transition and its role in the UK achieving its net zero ambitions. The Bigger, Faster, Better podcast series will explore how the UK performs in comparison to other countries in key renewable technologies. So I think there were some really interesting ideas there around storage and heat. But looking looking at that sort of recovered heat question, uh, Charles, you, you, you've talked before about there are some challenges around aligning interests between heat network owners and, and, and the people who own those sources of heat, say, old coal mines, whatever else. Maybe you could just explain a little bit more about that. First thing I'd say is that um, it isn't about ownership of the heat because actually nobody owns a lot of the heat that we're talking about, if we're talking about heat that's in the atmosphere or, or is kind of in the ground or in the water, legally speaking, the person doesn't own the heat, but they do control access to it often. And so I, I'd contrast an air source heat pump, which if you, as long as you've got somewhere to install your air source heat pump, all you need is an electricity supply and you can take heat from the atmosphere and that's all good. 
On the other hand, if you want to take heat out of the water that's in a flooded coal mine, you need to talk to the coal authority, not actually because they're the legal owners of the heat that's there, but because they control access to the heat resource. And the reason I make that slightly legalistic point is it actually is at the heart of, in the UK, what is um, uh, an ongoing debate where the people who control access to various heat sources have spotted the fact that A, they can do something to help with decarbonization. And so they can, by allowing access to their heat resources, they can help decarbonize heating. And that's that's a good thing. And in some cases, they've also spotted that there may be an economic opportunity for them because there may be some value that someone's willing to pay for being able to access the low carbon heat. And that debate about the commercial terms on which the person who controls access to the heat is willing to make a deal is very much an evolving debate in the UK. And it centers around risk and reward. If you're the controller of the heat, your ideal world is that you get rewarded, but you don't take any risk. And by that, I mean, you don't commit to make a certain amount of heat available or to make heat available continuously. You just say, here's my heat source, come and take the heat. And if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. But by the way, pay me. Whereas the buyer of the heat is saying, okay, I want access to your heat resource, but if you can't promise me that the heat's going to be there on a continuous basis or at a certain level, I'm going to pay you less for the access to the heat because I'm taking the risk that the heat may not be there at all times or it may not be there in in the quantities that I'm expecting. Uh, And so that debate is playing out, interestingly, in the context of sewer source. So the water companies and wastewater companies are engaging with the heat market, but are trying to work out what's their business model for granting access to sewers, etc. It's playing out with the coal authority with access to mine water. And it's playing out uh, in the debate with energy from waste plants, where again, that they're, they're, they're just trying to find the right commercial equilibrium between the two parties. So it's very much a dynamic uh, situation in the UK at the moment. Absolutely. And, and, and possibly an interesting question there about sort of potential carbon credits. And if you're su- supplying uh, a sort of a zero carbon source of heat, perhaps, you know, could you could you claim some sort of credits from that? I don't know. And, and Anuka, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you, are, there, are there similar challenges that you guys see around around that sort of access to to that sort of waste heat that Charles has been talking about? Yes, and um, we we also talk about the price. <laughs> That's the main question. But in Finland, uh, district heating companies typically operate the whole value chain of heat production, distribution and sales. And um, uh, approximately one third of all district heat produced in Finland is annually purchased from other producers such as industrial CHP plants and waste heat sources. So uh, the supply of the heat produced by other producers to the network, so-called third-party access, this is currently based on voluntary agreements between the third-party producers and district heating companies. And that's it. (laughs) And maybe we have already um, discussed about the possibilities to open the networks 
for third-party production with more transparent uh, conditions. And that has been discussed on national and also on an EU level lately. And the European Commission proposed uh, in the revised uh, Renewable Energy Directive that member states should uh, adapt uh, measures to ensure non-discriminatory access to district heating and cooling systems. So this is uh, still an ongoing issue in here in Finland and also in, in EU level. But uh, third-party access has been presented as a means to improve energy efficiency by utilizing waste heat and to increase renewable energy. So, however, these targets are already uh, promoted by other policy measures, such as uh, uh, emissions trading, energy taxation and building codes. So, because the uh, district heating system operators uh, such as heat production, sales and distributions are currently integrated, any regulated third-party access would require uh, significant changes to the current systems and uh, regulation. So our current system is working very well here in Finland. So basically we don't have any need to do any changes, but of course we are uh, following with any interest, what's new we will get from the EU side. Sure. And, and just, I mean, I think this sounds like a kind of a good time to maybe sort of talk about that sort of regulation side and competition. You mentioned at the beginning, obviously, there's a sort of a high upfront cost in that sort of first phase of development, at least. And I wonder to what extent that can exist in a sort of a competitive market. I mean, I think, you know, clearly, you know, we've we've seen in the last in the UK the sort of the, this kind of incredible rise of gas and, and power providers, and then and then something of a kind of a collapse in the last sort of twelve months or so, including uh, my uh, my gas company uh, itself fell over. So I mean, looking at this sort of state where we're in, where we are an incredibly competitive market in the UK with a number of sort of retail players, how can a, a heat network come in and and, and play in this sort of uh, play in this you know sort of really quite difficult market and, and and i suppose you know who should be taking the lead in terms of driving these developments forward as far as the competitive market point goes yes in principle there's no reason why heat networks can't be compatible with competition and indeed in the uk you know uh, i think it's fair to say that we were leaders in developing commercial models for competition in gas and electricity supply it's worth noting that like the other utilities, uh, networks, heat networks, like any other networks, are natural monopolies in the sense that once you've paid to install a heat network, it's never going to make economic sense for somebody else to try and install a network which follows more or less the same route. But that doesn't mean that you can't have competition. Uh, at least it doesn't mean you can't have competition in generation and in supply. The transmission element, the moving the heat from one place to another, probably is a monopoly. And so the models that we have in electricity and gas are, um, as Anuko was saying, it's third-party access. So the owner of the network has to make the network available to competitors, to a range of different people, both for the supply of energy into the network and taking energy out of the network. But there are you know, well-proven commercial models to make that work, notwithstanding the, the point that you rightly make about the stresses that the 
gas supplier market is currently under in in the UK. You know, I'm not pretending that the model is is perfect and uh, and has no problems, but it is possible to do it. And I think those those same same principles apply equally to to heat networks. Having said that, the market in the UK is uh, it, it's in its infancy. And like those electricity and gas markets, it's likely that in the first phase, you won't have the separation, the regulatory separation of generation, distribution, and supply. And in fact, it's likely that at least two of those, the distribution and supply, will be carried out by the same party, the party that owns the heat network. And so I think there'll be an evolution in the UK market, and government is consulting on the possibility in the context of zoning, it is uh, consulting on the possibility of third-party access, how that might work. So it's clearly on, in, in the government's mind, but I think the immediate priority is to get some heat networks built and operational. And that probably means that the initial stage will be a bundled rather than the unbundled structure. Sure. And then I suppose just, you know, looking at the, the, the way in which those discussions are held with consumers, right? I mean, I think, you know, obviously from, from, a, from a governmental perspective, there's a clear driver to, to you know, that the heating networks can provide that sort of decarbonisation move. I think that, that, that seems pretty evident. But I, I wonder how those discussions go with kind of consumers. I mean, I think, you know, there's been talk around how consumers might move from the boiler in, in, in your airing cupboard or, or your garage or whatever to some new model. And I think this this is a problem that, that obviously also, you know, with, with any sort of move, whether it's a hydrogen boiler or, or a sort of a, an, an individual heat pump, are, are people open to, 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 to embracing this sort of district heating network plan? I think they are. I think heat networks in the UK... Uh, have had a bad rep uh, historically. They've been relatively small in number and small in scale. And the service that consumers have received from some of those heat networks has been, frankly, not good. Uh, so when there are problems, they're slow to be fixed. There have been concerns about rip-off pricing. So it would be wrong to deny that there is, I think, some skepticism in the UK consumer market about heat networks. Having said that, I think those are the consequence of some bad practices by a limited number. There's nothing inherent in a, in a heat network scheme, which means that consumers are going to get a bad deal or a bad standard of service. So I think, uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that what we're going to see in the UK is that with the expansion of the market and the entry of some really professional organizations delivering the services, actually consumers will learn that heat networks can provide a reliable and cost competitive source of low carbon heat. They'll get a good standard of service and government is, is of course, reinforcing that with the introduction of or increased regulation of the heat market to protect um, consumer, particularly domestic consumer rights. So I think that from a consumer's point of view, one of the advantages is you don't have such big capital investment up front. You don't need to spend thousands of pounds on a boiler. The heat network company will connect your building to the heat network there may be a connection cost for larger uh, loads, 
But the economics, I think, over time will prove to be competitive, certainly very competitive with other low carbon sources of heating. And Anuka, obviously, you know, you, you, you've got the experience in providing uh, those networks to consumers. And, 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 and approval ratings in, in Finland, as I understand it, are much higher. I mean, what's the, what's the kind of the key to that success? Very hard to say what's what's the key for the success. But uh, currently here in Finland, uh, about 50% of the population still lives in district heated buildings. And traditionally, district heating has been produced by burning a variety of uh, fuels, much of which have been uh, fossil, like coal, gas, oil and peat. But however, in the last 10 years, uh, transition has begun, where fossil-free um, production methods for district heating have become more common. And uh, right now, this upheaval is uh, as its strongest right now. And uh, I think we need uh, more new and good examples and best practices to keep uh, district heating uh, networks alive. And we have already uh, accomplished many uh, successful projects where district heating and heat pumps will together deliver heating with zero emissions, reusing heat from uh, data centers or industrial processes. And uh, we are going to need them all, including district heating and cooling when decarbonizing uh, our economy. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So, so thank you so much, Anuka and Charles. It seems to me that there's going to have to be an all of the above strategy for the energy transition. And I think the scale of the challenge means that there's not one single answer to how we're going to crack this particular challenge. Finland has got the, the infrastructure in place and there's a real drive there, as Anuka has said, to shift to decarbonise heat. In the UK, we, we lack that infrastructure advantage, but we're at a point where we're thinking about building the energy system for the next 50 years, rather than being hamstrung by the decisions of the last 100 years. And so it, it seems that heating networks must surely have a part to play. To our listeners, please let us know your thoughts on this topic through the Energy Voice social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com also. While I'm here, I'd love to remind you to tune into our regular weekly news episodes. If this is the first time you're finding Energy Voice Out Loud, you can tap the follow button in your favorite podcast app to get every episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, as well as every episode of Energy Voice Out Loud, which drop every Friday, in which I and other Energy Voice journalists from across the globe explain the biggest energy news of the week. But today, this has been the fourth episode of the Bigger, Faster, Better podcast series. I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.